Alrighty, folks. Last episode of the year. Last episode of the year. Uh, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about. But thankfully, we are not going to go down every single rabbit hole in the absolutely massive CMMC rule. We're just going to cover the logistics to point you in the right direction so that you can read it yourself. And we're going to do our top takeaways. Uh, because January 10th, we're going to have a webinar at 10.30 a.m. Central, 11.30 a.m. Eastern. We're going to cover all the details. We're going to cover all the specifics. We're going to cover all the what-ifs. We're going to cover all the Q&A. We're going to do all that stuff on the 10th after the holiday. This is just going to be a gentle introduction to the rule, if you will. I'm not going to do what everybody thinks I'm going to do and pretend nothing happened over the holiday break and that this is absolutely dull and dormant. We won't have anything to talk about. Super pumped. It's yeah. finally happened. It's finally here. And there's no more, well, I think the rule's going to say this. Nope. Rule says this, folks. And we are going to spend a very long time, uh, a lot of episodes on this show, digging into exactly what this means, because this paints the picture for at least the next three years. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, you, would, you would think that by the time this process happens again, maybe we'll get through all of it. Who knows? So yeah, no, there's plenty, plenty of stuff to talk about. Uh, plenty of interesting wrinkles, plenty of, uh, plenty of cool stuff in the rule. Um, okay. So like I said, we're going to have that webinar on January 10th. We'll have the registration link below might have a card pop up here in the corner. Um, so check that out. Make sure you register. Um, and we shouldn't run out of seats. I think we'll be just fine, but make sure you register at that link below. Okay. The logistics, if you will, I don't have a better term for this. So let's just cover uh, the, 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 the roadmap of, of what's going on and where to find the information. So the rule was published. The CMMC rule was published the Friday before Christmas on the federal register. The DOD has published the CMMC proposed rule. First thing to know, it is a proposed rule, not an interim final rule, which means the DOD needs to collect public comments. And then they need to respond to those public comments in what is known as a final rule. A final rule is what will make the CMMC program effective uh, after it's published. Uh, the timeline, what that looks like, uh, how that's going to play out moving forward is something we're going to talk about on the webinar. Your big takeaway right now, the rule is published, but nothing has actually changed. So take your time, read the rule, see what it's saying. Do you agree with policy decisions? Do you disagree with policy decisions? And then formulate and submit your public comments. On the note for public comments, Standard 60-day public comment period began on December 26th. It will end on February 26th. If you would like to submit your comment, and you should, you should participate in the process. Uh, you can find the link to submitting your comment at the same link uh, on the Federal Register page. There's a big green box in the upper right-hand corner um, where the CMMC rule is published that says, submit a formal comment. Very, very easy. Uh, the, you know, uh, one thing that could happen, uh, the, the public comment period could be extended. Some defense industry groups are already asking for the public comment period to be extended. The rule is very large, so that's a good reason for the public comment to be, uh, period to be extended. It's not a guarantee, so just know, right, as of right now, the deadline for submitting comments is February 26th, but keep your ear to the ground, uh, like, and subscribe, and we'll let you know if it, uh, <laughs> if it, gets, uh, if it gets extended. Okay. The PDF version of the rule is 234 pages long. Um, if you find the web formatted version, uh, it's, you know, 
the way that it's formatted and structured, you can't really tell how long it is. You'll be scrolling for a long time, but the PDF version that you can access on the Federal Register, 234 pages. Again, uh, the biggest point I will stress is everyone should read the rule. We will do our best to go into the details of the rule. We will do our best on the webinar to summarize the rule. There's gonna be lots and lots of material, lots and lots of summaries, lots and lots of blogs. There will be no shortage of takes and opinions and summaries and this and that. Everywhere you go, you should read it for yourself. Um, what I will say about the rule is it's quite repetitive. Um, in certain spots, if you've listened to this podcast any number of times in the past, you probably know the story of how we got to CMMC, and you'll see that story repeated many, many times throughout the rule. Um, so you can sort of save some time by skimming over those sections, but everybody should read the rule. The way that I would describe it is I would broadly divide the rule into three sections. If you're trying to think about where you are mentally, um, the probably largest portion of what we call the rule is what would be called supplementary information. Sometimes this is referred to as the preamble of a rule. This contains the history of the program, the reasoning for the program, all of the regulatory analyses that are required for the program, um, all of the cost analysis, all of the assumptions, uh, all of that stuff, all of the mm -hmm. policy muckety muck is in the supplementary uh, information section. The next section is the actual text of the rule itself, the actual text of the regulation that will be printed in the Code of Federal Regulations. Interestingly, it's a 234-page document. The text of the regulation is only like 75 pages long. Everything else before that is all supplementary information. And that's one of the reasons why the rulemaking process takes so long as they've got to do this analysis and they've got to comply with this executive order and they've got to format it this way and they've got to get this analysis and this set of assumptions cross-checked amongst different agencies. It's all that supplementary information that gets generated that causes the program to take so long, even though the text of the rule is like, you know, less than half of what the supplementary information uh, contains. And then finally, the third section here is the set of CMMC documents themselves. So these are the level one, two, three assessment guides, the scoping guides, the model overview, the hashing guides. There are nine documents. They are also available uh, linked on the federal register. Uh, we will link to that second page in the show notes. So you've got a link on the federal register for the CMMC rule. You've got a link on the federal register for the CMMC guidance documents is what they're calling them. Each of those nine guidance documents has their own button for submitting comments if you want to submit a specific comment on a specific guidance document. Now, I think a lot of people are probably just going to probably jam their comments all together into the top level rule, which is probably fine. But the option is available if you're like, I just want to submit a comment on the level two scoping guide. If you go to the link on the Federal Register, you can find the submit your comment um, that is specific just for the level two scoping guide. Nice and easy. This is the thing that we talked about, um, you know, in the weeks preceding the publication, because everybody said, oh, well, the, the guidance documents uh, were were sent to OMB on a different date. I Like we said, it's just an artifact of the OMB system uh, where they had to generate a new, essentially a new tracking number for each document so that they could track the comments individually. So it made it look mm -hmm. like the timelines were all separate. Doesn't matter now. <laughs> None of that stuff matters now, 
They're all posted and you can submit your comments on each one of them. Okay, two quick tips here. If you are short on time and for some reason you don't want to read 234 pages of dense and repetitive policy supplementary information, here's what I recommend. The first thing I would recommend is that you should read the regulatory impact analysis. This is also linked on the Federal Register page for the rule. This is sometimes called an RIA, a regulatory impact analysis. It is only 36 pages long and it contains information on background and key changes from 1.0 to 2.0, policy problems addressed by CMMC, implementation and flowdown of CMMC, talks about the three-year phased rollout, which we will go into detail in on the webinar, uh, the assessment levels, uh, the criteria for the different levels, the impact and cost analysis of CMMC, and the alternatives that were considered and the benefits of the program. So if you want the Cliff's Note Notes version, uh, check out the regulatory impact analysis. You will find that in the bottom right corner of the Federal Register page below where you submit your comment. If you are even shorter on time and you don't have time or the will to read 36 pages, what I recommend is reading the Initial Regulatory Flexibility Analysis, the R uh, IRFA, also available at the same length just below the RIA. It is only 19 pages long and it covers reasons for the action, objectives and legal basis for the rule, anticipated benefits and costs, small business entities impacted, relevant federal rules which may duplicate or overlap the program, alternatives considered, and benefits of the program. All of the information in both of those documents are contained in the 234 page rule itself. There's a couple of things that are new in those documents. Um, so if you read the whole rule, you'll basically read what's in the RIA and the IRFA. Uh, you'll see them cited and called out saying, if you want more details, go find those documents. So if you're not going to read the whole rule, read those two. If you're not going to read those two, read the 19 page one. If you're not going to read any of them, uh, come watch our webinar. But it would probably help a lot if you at least familiarize yourself with the contents of those documents before the webinar probably help you ask more informed questions, but not a prerequisite reading list for the webinar by any means. But uh, there's something for everybody here. You get the whole rule, you got a 36 pager, you get a 19 pager, uh, you got the podcast and you got the webinar coming up on the 10th. So whichever form of information you would like, uh, uh, those options are available. Okay, I think that covers the sort of high level, where to find it, where to submit a comment, what the comment timeline is where to get smaller versions of it. So that should set everybody up, I think, headed into uh, the New Year's holiday. So what we wanted to do was just talk about just our top takeaway, like not talking about what are the top 15 things in the rule? You know, what are the top 50 things in the rule? Because there's many, many interesting elements of the rule. Just literally what are, you know, your, what is your top takeaway? So uh, to kick it off here, um, probably the top takeaway that I have from a rule structure standpoint, a rule structure standpoint, so I cheated, I actually have two. I have a top takeaway from the structure of the rule. I have a top takeaway from the substance of the rule, if you will. And these are initial, right? These are after our first few passes through the rule. My top takeaway of the structure of the rule is that the 2023 rule responds to public comments submitted on the 2020 rule. I this knew was this was going to be yours. I knew it. I knew it's, it. 
it's fascinating. It's fascinating. This is a thing. If anybody remembers from a couple of weeks ago, we were speculating, you know, would the rule respond to the comments that were submitted in 2020 because it's the same subject material? And sure enough, they did. Um, and this is very interesting because typically proposed rules are proposing something new. They aren't responding to comments that they received in the past. Comment responses typically uh, appear in final rules. So we've got a weird sort of hybrid position here where you had the 2020 rule that established the CMMC clause. Now you've got the 2023 rule that is putting the cart behind the horse and saying, okay, here's the program. Uh, but they still respond to the comments received in 2020. And I would say that if, if there was one section of the rule that sums up the DOD's overall policy position on critiques of the CMMC program, it would be this. Please allow me to, uh, to, to read from the rule here. So the public comment is, and I'm quoting here, multiple commenters commented on the cost impact of CMMC to small businesses, suggesting that the cost to become and remain compliant is too high. Okay, you've heard that. Several commenters added that small businesses limited by finances won't be able to compete, which could be detrimental to the supply chain and efforts to meet national defense goals. Also something that we commonly hear. And that the rule fails to provide any consideration for the future loss of technology acquisition should small businesses be inadvertently precluded from participation. Okay, we've heard that. Other commenters suggested that the impact of CMMC will be a profound and significant obstacle to businesses due to their lack of resources as compared to their large business competitors. Also a very common sentiment. Adding that the requirement to have the same measure in place for any company, regardless of size, incurs a higher percentage of indirect costs for small business, something we've talked about on the podcast many times. Multiple commenters remarked, on the limited or lack of options for small businesses to recover costs. So you think about the, the smorgasbord of public comments around those themes that were received in 2020, and that is how the DOD summarizes what they saw in the public comments, which I feel like is a pretty good summary of many of the critiques of the program. But what we get is not just a summary, we get this response from DOD. So here's how DOD responds to those issues that people and these responses have a theme by the way yeah and this is a quote this is not me editorializing yeah. don't at me right this is what the <laughs> dod is saying in black and white see if this sounds familiar about some of the things that we guess that the dod might say quoting here the estimated costs attributed to this rule do not include the costs associated with compliance with existing cybersecurity requirements under FAR Clause 5220421, or associated with implementing NIST SP 800-171 requirements in accordance with DFARS Clause 7012. <sighs> they go on to say, to the extent that defense contractors or subcontractors have already been awarded DOD contracts or subcontracts that include these clauses, and process, store, or transmit FCI or CUI in support of the performance of those contracts, Costs for implementing those cybersecurity requirements should have already been incurred and are not attributed to this rule. Those costs are distinct from costs associated with undergoing CMMC assessment to verify implementation of those security requirements. The CMMC program does not levy additional information security protection requirements for CMMC levels one and two. The value of DOD sensitive information 
and impact of its loss to the department does not diminish when it moves to contractors, prime or sub, large or small. Next question. Here we go. Uh, comment, 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 response, response, response. That is the DOD's policy position to each of those critiques of the program. I am very happy to see that they summarized those policy positions in a single comment response in a proposed rule. Because what it does is it it essentially preempts people resubmitting those comments again, right? They're going to point to that position and say, this is where we, this is our position, our policy on those critiques of CMMC. Because like we've talked about a lot, the typically the cost associated with CMMC and the resulting impacts of the cost of CMMC misrepresent what's going on. They conflate the cost of implementing and complying with DFAR 7012 with the cost of CMMC. And sure enough, just like we said would happen, um, the DOD says that's a different problem. That's a different rule. You need to take that up with DFAR 7012. I wish we could have a montage of the video clips uh, from this show, just this show's history where we go through and we're talking about costs associated with CMMC and Jacob hits a line, but DOD saying what costs? Right, right. These costs now, are already there. You know, we, we, we called it, anybody who listened, they know we called it. Hopefully, you know, that reinforces that, uh, you know, we're, we, we kind of have a clear eyed view of what the DOD is going to say before they say it. Uh, and people find that valuable, but I'm not here to spike the football. I'm just saying you can find this no. in the rule itself. And I think that it is a very, uh, Bob Metzger would describe it as a full throated endorsement of DOD's previous policy positions, right? The question was, yeah. They had a consistent policy position in 2013, consistent policy position in 2016, a consistent policy position in 2020. Everybody said, well, what about cost, impact, complexity, blah, blah, blah. And our question was, what makes you think that DOD is going to change their policy position? They probably won't, which means they'll probably say the following in the rule. And sure enough, here's what they say in the rule. This is one small snippet of the rule. So please, you really should read the whole rule. But if you want a vibe check, on how DOD is approaching the critiques of the CMC program, that section right there is probably the best summary uh, that I could point to. Yeah, this one question is a small snippet of obviously the comments, or this one comment is a small snippet of it, but there were multiple comments about cost and every single comment, like I said, when, when you started this, there was a theme and this is the theme. Yep, what yep, cost? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now there are details about the actual cost of getting a CMMC assessment or the the new costs of implementing 800-172 to meet CMMC mm -hmm. level three. Um, and that's, a, but that's, that is a matter specific to the CMMC rule. It is relevant. And we'll talk about those and the charts and all that stuff uh, when we get on the webinar. Um, but you can scroll through, I think there's like 35 different tables inside the rule. So lots and lots of numbers. Lots and lots of stuff to read through. People should check it out over the holiday. Okay, so that was my top takeaway for the the structure of the rule is that they respond to public comments and a couple of them are pretty spicy. My top takeaway for the substance of the rule, if you will, is like we talked about before, the rule specifies NIST SP 800-171 revision two. And this is gonna cause Jeez, a bunch of problems. Nice. It's gonna cause a bunch of problems because DFAR 7012 does not specify a specific revision. And so, be, you know, when NIST SP 800-171 is revised to revision three, that means DFAR 7012 is obligating you to implement a different version than you will be assessed against uh, 
in the rule. So that sort of brings up a couple questions. Uh, are they going to keep a specific revision in the final CMMC rule? If they do, how will they handle the discrepancy? How will they handle the gap? Will you just park the delta of Rev3 on your POAM? And, uh, and you know, the assessors that show up just won't be able to ask you questions about it. Will they change the language in the proposed rule to reflect DFAR 7012 language when they publish the CMMC final rule and have them match? Uh, we know that DFAR 7012 is being revised in 2024. So will DFAR 7012 be updated to specify a specific revision? Uh, we don't know, um, but there is no reference to 800-171 in the rule that doesn't specify revision two, even in sometimes confusing ways. When they talk about when, uh, you know, 800-171 was originally required, they say revision two, but revision two didn't exist when it was originally required. They just went through and did a find and replace anywhere with 800-171 and slapped revision two on there just to be safe. So uh, that's definitely going to be a thorny issue to try to sort out whether they keep it or whether they change it. Um, so that's definitely something to keep top of mind uh, and how that plays out is going to be one of the main things that I'm looking at. Your two takeaways are two things that were on our Christmas wish list. We got one. We, we got the public comments and we got to witness that. The other one was not to hard code a yeah. version of 800-171. I specifically requested that they don't do this and they didn't listen to me. How dare they? <laughs> and and so like when I when I got the role and I was reading it, and I, I immediately was like, well, maybe it's a slip up. Maybe it's a typo. They wrote this a long time ago. They had to go through an edit and they, they wanted to take it out or whatever it may be. Not a slip up. Well, 800-171 revision two. That word right there shows up 103 times throughout the, the rule. Now, if I, if I put on my DOD hat, here's what I would say. I would say, well, you're welcome. Because if you go also back, true. if you go back to the 2016 rule, what DOD says is we did you a favor by creating 800-171 because it is a 30% reduction in the total amount of things that you have to do compared to the 2013 baseline that DFAR 7012 originally required. And so they got to say, oh, no, 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 this actually isn't a big burden. It's less of a burden. We're helping industry by creating 800-171. What I would do if I were the DOD is I would say, yeah, we are going to require a lesser standard. We are actually going to make it easier on industry by not creating a floating revision number. And so it will take longer for us to get to 800-171 Rev 3. And we're doing that to prevent a bigger unsized, outsized impact on small business, so on and so forth. So uh, there is a definite, uh, uh, you know, uh, ace up the sleeve here for for DOD to say, yeah, we hard coded revision two, and it, we're actually doing you a favor. So I wonder if they'll, you know, spin it that way. That's how I would spin it if I were in their shoes. Um, it, it's very well, interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, but but what if what you said doesn't happen? And when they revise 7012, the revision of 7012 doesn't hard code a specific revision that aligns with the CMMC rule. Yeah. And then it's the latest version. And then we'd think back and you think about the national cybersecurity strategy and how it says that we want to unify cybersecurity requirements, regulations, and protections across all agencies, right? And right here within the same agency, we can't even get it right. That that's a that's a big deal. Like, I wonder, that, yeah, I mean, I wonder if NIST is going to submit a comment because you know you you basically you take all the language about why NIST justifies changing from Rev two to Rev three, and they're like it's a better standard. It's updated for the threat. 
it's a better holistic standard. It's better. It is objectively a better standard than Rev2. And you've got a program that is hard coding the previous version. So is NIST going to be like, hey, that's not a good idea? Um, because, you know, there, there's a history of NIST doing that in the in the DFAR cybersecurity, you know, pantheon of rules in the past. So I wonder how that will play out because, you know, there's, we've talked about this before, there's a tension out there between people saying 800-171, thus CMMC, does not do enough to address the threat. And then right. in, the, in the next breath, they'll say CMMC is too expensive. And so you're like, well... <laughs> Um, we're going to, we got to pick one because the, the, the more expansive and in depth, the standard gets, the more it's going to cost, right? It's just, that's, it, it isn't a linear increase, but you're doing more things. And so there's more things to do. Uh, time is money. Things are money. It's going to cost more money. So, uh, I just, I want to know how this is going to get sorted out. It's one of the main things we got to look at because it causes issues with 7012 it causes issues with the program. It causes issues with NIST. It causes issues with your POAM. It causes people to have to juggle multiple things. It causes issues in the actual uh, documentation, the actual yeah, where I the mean, rubber hits the road in terms of what assessors have to learn and what assessors yeah. have to juggle with. It's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, and they did it. They hard coded it. Uh, so it's something we all got to look at. If you think that they should keep the variable revision number, submit your comment. Right. Uh, please read the rule, submit your comments. Very, very important to submit your comments. Okay. So uh, hold on though. You brought up NIST thing. And I brought this up to you last night and, and I really think it has to be addressed is the fact that if NIST keeps up with their regular revision cycle and we keep the same CMMC rule revision cycle, how many versions of NIST 800-171 will NIST have released or improvements and updates have, have released by the time the next rulemaking cycle comes through to yeah. program the hard code. And then are you going to jump two versions in this? So now organizations that complied at Rev 2, maybe we're at Rev 4 at this point, right? Well, and then they have know, two already, revisions. You know, with IA, the IA 13 control, NIST has already talked about how they want to have a rolling update to the catalog over time. Yeah. Like they want that revision cycle to be faster and faster over time. So how is that going to play out? Now, that might be outside the scope of what the rule needs to comprehend, but it is a bigger issue that people should think about. Like, what are we going to do? You have to have vision. You have to have sight into the bigger picture of things when you're making, however, I don't however, know, rules. There is no, there is no contract that requires 853 for the companies that are doing weapon system development that has a floating revision number. Like, mm -hmm. that does, that's not how that works. They have... 853 rev three rev four rev five and if you would like the program to update to the next revision of 853 you have to issue a contract mod so uh it the dfr 7012 language is an anomaly in the world of nist standards being specified in contracts so is it the way that it's supposed to be or uh was it the weird one and this is actually the way that it's supposed to be i don't know I'm not sure if DOD knows. Uh, we got to wait and see what, they, what they're what they going to do. But what do you think? Let us know in the comments. Do you think that it should be a floating revision? Do you think that it should be a static revision? Like, how is that going to play out as NIST is able to make their revisions faster and faster? You know, it's an open question. This is why we have a public comment period. Um, this is why the comments are open on our videos. What What is the right thing? I think there's trade-offs to both. 
I think that having one in the CMMC rule and another in the DFARS rule don't help, right? I think that's probably the worst situation is that you've got floating revision in one and a specific revision in the other. You either need to pick static revisions or you need to pick floating revisions and then and then just play it from there, right? Uh, if you have if you have both, then it's a huge mess. Yeah, what's harder than to what's harder than making people comply with one standard that they don't really understand, two that are similar but they don't understand either one at the yeah. same time. Like it, you know, yeah, we we can talk about this on another episode as well, right? Of but course, it, like, yeah, yeah. Like there's details on the poem, you know, poem issues and the CMC rule are very strict, and then you've got a floating revision number in DFAR seventy twelve which means you're going to park the entire delta of rev three on a POAM. So you are, you are tightening the restrictions on a POAM with the right hand, and you are shoving a huge delta of controls automatically onto the POAM with the left hand. Which one is it? Are POAMs, do we have POAMs or not? Because if every revision that comes out, I got to park the entire delta on the POAM indefinitely until you update your rule, then, uh, you know, it's just, it, like I yeah. said, it's a mess. We'll talk about it more in the future. There, but there's going to be no shortage of things of us for, for us to talk about, and it's obvious so far in this episode. Yeah, but that one my, definitely my, jumps off the page for me is the revision number. My takeaway, I, I think I'm going to stick to one. I'm going to keep it high level, and then we can briefly touch on the second one that I had. But the, the one that we, we asked for it, right? We, um, we, we didn't specifically put it on our Christmas list, so to say, but... We have begged for this. It did not make sense. Both of us have been through the CCP course. Both of us have taught a CCP course at this point. Um, <clears throat> why was CCPs only limited? The rule changes the capabilities, the requirements, and the limitations for credential roles, right? It, it kind of lays out, it maps them out, it, it points things out. And the biggest change to it is now CCPs, CMMC certified professionals, are able to assess all objectives with a CCA oversight instead of being constricted to 15. Why is this huge? Praise the Lord that this has happened, but this is huge now because you go from, I don't know, what was the number 348 CCAs or something of that nature? And you had a thousand CCPs. So you had a thousand people that could assess 15 controls. Yeah. Now you have 1300 people that can assess 110 controls. Talk Very about an instant instant injection yep. of a, into the assessor pool. Great work because you have a lead assessor or you have a CCA that's leading the team for a reason, and it's the oversight. And any CCA is going to review these things and make sure that whatever the CCP does is there. Perfect. Yeah, I agree. Now, I think, uh, yeah. Just, and like we said before, if you know how a 800-171A assessment procedure works, you know how an 800-171A assessment procedure works. They're the same, whether you're looking at level one, level two, level three, 853, FedRAMP, doesn't matter. Same pattern, same structure over mm -hmm. and over again. No need for the arbitrary constraint. I think it's a great change. I agree with your point. Next adjustment to the, the changes in the capabilities of the credentialed roles, CCAs, it's the requirements. So now CCAs not only have to have one year worth of assessment experience, three years worth of cybersecurity ex uh, experience, but then there are um, provisions that they have to meet. They have to either hold either a IAT level two cert in accordance with DOD manual 8570, right? And that's like um, the GCISP, Security Plus. The CISSP is a level three. That'll cover everything. Yeah. Um, the CISM is a technical one, but sometimes it'll transfer over. Um, or meet uh, intermediate proficiency requirements, uh, the Certified Assessor 612 proficiency requirements from DOD Manual 8140. So that's, again, 
Um, that pathway has things like these certifications that we just talked about in the IAT, but it, a bachelor's or degree, uh, you know, it, it, from an accredited university, um, work relevant work experience and things of that nature. So it kind of, once again, is uh, another workaround. Uh, not only does it provide structure to exactly what a CCA needs, but it's another workaround to maybe populate the assessor pool quickly with people that have experience, right? Yeah, the other uh, from, thing that it yeah. does, right, is it, it makes the assessors more robust, right? Everybody, mm -hmm. you know, it's it again, it's another tension that crops up where people go, we want assessments to be cheap, but we also don't want uh, subpar subjective assessments. We want assessors to be well-versed on all the possible technologies, all the possible permutations of those technologies. We want them to know Absolutely. what they're talking about. We want them to be technical. We want them to be this. We want them to be that. Uh, that is very expensive to find. And so I think this is a good move because you want your assessors to be as good as possible, but that's going to come at a price. And like we've talked about in the past, the CMMC program kind of requires the assessors that participate in the program to be able to uh, have qualifications that are more strict than certainly than ISO, right? Like you don't have to have certs other than the ISO assessor cert or whatever in order to conduct those assessments under SOC. You're working under a CPA, but the SOC assessors don't technically have to have any particular other certification or anything like that. Now, they often do, but they don't have to. Uh, so I think this is good because you're making the requirements for CCAs more stringent, which means the assessors will, you know, at least iteratively get somewhat better over time. But that's going to cost money. So... It's more ammunition, uh, ammunition to the argument that not only do we have an assessor pool, but we have a qualified assessor pool. And this is the reason why we have a qualified yeah. assessor pool. Yeah. I think and then the last, yeah. the last point uh, to the changes in the roles, the, the, uh, the uh, you know, the credentialed roles that we've noticed. And this is a big Hufflepuff on this one. It has to deal with certified CMMC instructors, right? So we're both PIs. Um, we both instruct. It's provisional. There's no CCI as of yet. Um, but there's a conflict of interest uh, tidbit that, that spun up that says that CCIs, while serving um, as a CMMC instructor, cannot provide consulting services. So many people, interpretation words matter. Many people have taken this multiple ways, and I'm sure that many people are going to dive into this and many people already have. I take this as I'm teaching a class. I cannot provide consulting services where, Jacob, you're in my class, and then you just have this specific question that really applies to, uh, don't use the CMMC classroom and your instructor as open source consulting to try to figure out how to implement Control 313, right? It, do not go through this point and say, well, what if I had a Microsoft 365 environment? Just start naming off your asset list and be like, how do I control my flow down? And then... The, the teacher, instead of sticking to the curriculum, breaks off of the curriculum, spends 46 on poor Jacob's, you know, uh, 313 implementation problem, 46 minutes on it. And the rest of the class is now stupider for having listened to somebody else's yeah. problem they can't relate to. That's not how I that's not how I read it. Uh, I read that. And this is obviously very in the weeds in terms of right. specific things within specific CMMC credentialed roles. This is a good example of you can go from the highest level policy statements in the rule down to the most minute little situational details of CMMC specific things all within this same rule. Uh, I don't, I think the whole thing's ridiculous, right? Obviously when you're teaching the class, you shouldn't spend too much time on any particular example and you shouldn't be providing any particular recommendations. I think the fact that the requirements to become a CCI eventually are so strict that this will be 
a non-issue. When I read the line that said that CCI shouldn't uh, provide consulting, I read the opposite situation in the sense that CCIs shouldn't provide consulting broadly, which is frankly ridiculous. It's the same thing as a C3PAO organization providing consulting services. The deal is if you consult, you don't assess the work that you consult on because it's a mm-hmm. conflict of interest. That's why you have a professional code of ethics that you enforce, right? That's how it works. The idea that just because you're a CCI, you can't give consulting because you're a CCI is dumb. It's counterproductive. It's not helpful. And I think it's uh, it somewhat uh, is mildly insulting to people who would otherwise comply with the code of professional ethics anyways. Like I said, this is a very narrow issue, but I think it's it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, I... I cannot disagree with you whatsoever. And I think that this is one of those things, not only will it get a lot of comments, uh, but we're going to need a little bit of clarification. Yeah. And <clears throat> and to that point, I would say zooming all the way out, all the way out. The thing I've noticed in the discourse, even though, you know, it's still holidays. So, so I'm sure some people aren't even totally aware that the rule is out at this point. One of the things that I've noticed is the most refreshing thing about the rule being published is that the, the the broader conversation is not about whether the rule will be published. It's about the details in the rule as it is published, which is just such a nice change of pace because we're talking about what did you mean by saying this? Should you say this instead rather than we think the rule is fake news, right? So yeah. that that is the part that I think I'm I'm enjoying the most currently. That and it's no longer people providing, you know, uh, reactions to comments based on speculation or what happened way back when. There's no Pepperidge Farm remembers. It's the CMMC rule shows us, right? Yep. And so yep. we can look at that. You have a, a source reference to go there. Um, before, before we jump out of here, Jacob, really quickly, one other big change, JSVAs, Joint Surveillance Voluntary Assessments. Let's talk about this. We thought, and it's just a change to what we thought the intent was, and this is why it was important to make these statements that this is the intent, this is what we think it is, we are speculating, until we see it in the rule, it's not final, right? So, you know, the whole thing about JSVAs when they first came out is that it could possibly, potentially, once you get that JSVA certification, mean that you have a CMC level two certification technically for whatever period until the rule goes final and then three years after. That's not the case. It's now three years from the date of the end of that assessment. And it just, if it happens after the rule goes final, then whatever that buffer time that's left over, you still have that buffer time, but you have to prepare for research. This includes JSVAs and any organization that got a DIBCAC high assessment from DIBCAC. So no C3PO involvement, just DIBCAC, because you got the whiz bang stuff and the DOD is important about that. They came in and checked it. If you got a perfect score, you have no open POAMs, then you are eligible for this. What does eligible mean? Not 100% sure, but it is good note. At some point, it it is now not, there was speculation that the JSVAs were going to be for naught, or what if the DOD didn't follow through on their intent and they just said, well, thanks for practicing, right? So now that this is going through, this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And the DIBCAC assessment, high assessments being added into it is another very huge deal for organizations that have critical and high value assets. That's it, standing off the soapbox. Yeah, if you got your JSVA or if you got a DIBCAC high, make sure you look for that section in the rule because there is a pathway for those being grandfathered two certs, but there are some catches and some conditions. Uh, so make sure you look for that in the rule. Also something that I think uh, at least a portion of the ecosystem will be interested in. Okay, that is a sort of very quick, high level, gentle introduction to the overall rule. Please read the rule. 
please read the uh, smaller versions of the rule that we talked about earlier. Please attend our webinar where we will try to summarize all of these things and make sure that you like and subscribe because uh, there are going to be many, many episodes going into the many, many rabbit holes contained in the rule for quite some time into the future. But it is the end of the year. It's almost New Year's Eve. We're ready to party. So uh, we'll see you guys next year. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, see you next year.